last time we finished Isaiah 30, which takes us to Isaiah 31 tonight. We'll probably get 31 and 32 this evening without any problem. This is still in the context of the Assyrian invasion, and there's some end time stuff or some stuff that could be end times depending on how you look at it. And in some cases, I think I know what it is. In some cases, I don't think I know what it is. So we'll proceed. So Isaiah 31. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And you've all been through the historical context. The Assyrians are coming down from the north. They will destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah will try and form an alliance with Egypt. Egypt, by that point, is sort of a declining power. They are not the powerhouse that they used to be. In fact, the Assyrians will clobber the Egyptians as part of their invasion. So the idea of relying on an alliance with Egypt, God is saying, is really not a good idea. Verse 2, And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. Yet he is wise and brings disaster. He is the Lord. Verse 3, the Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. They will all perish together. What God is obviously saying here is that he is going to orchestrate things And when he stretches out his hand, the armies of the world and those who depend upon them will all perish, which is why he's telling them not to depend on the Egyptians. Verse 4, For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted by their noise, So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. So the idea of the Lord being intimidated by human armies is obviously a non-starter. And he's also promising to protect Jerusalem. We have been through this before, but just briefly... Your cross-reference is in 2 Kings 19. That is the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians at the time of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 19.32 Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people rose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esharhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So we've been through this. This is not the first time this has come up in Isaiah. 
So Isaiah is doing this by way of encouraging Hezekiah. So the prophecy here is telling Hezekiah not to try and establish an alliance with Egypt. God will take care of it. And when the Assyrians do move against Jerusalem, Hezekiah uh, pays a bribe and tries to buy them off. And obviously, as we see in 2 Kings, the Assyrians don't get bought off, and they continue and try and move against Jerusalem, and God moves against the Assyrians. And of course, Sennacherib, who is the king, when he goes back, having lost his field army, does not fare well back home in Nineveh. Having sustained a military calamity, he is taken out by his own sons, and another of his sons that reigns in his place. Don't know enough about Assyrian history to know whether Eshahadan, who's the one who winds up being the king, put his two younger brothers up to it. No idea. So we're back in Isaiah 31, verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. He shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror. His officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. We just read the second king passage that describes that. All right, now, beginning of 32. One of the commentaries I read said that this is talking about a period of time after the Assyrians are defeated and before the Babylonians show up. It reads in some ways like that, but it also reads in some ways like end times, the millennial kingdom. So I'm not really sure which we're talking about, or maybe we're talking about a mix of the two. So 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. How many of you seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia with Peter O'Toole? So in the movie, Omar Sharif, who is the son of Anthony Quinn, who is a desert sheik, picks up Peter O'Toole in the desert and takes him back to his tent. And O'Toole is trying to convince the Arabs to mount an attack across the desert to the coast. And Anthony Quinn stands up, bloviates massively, and says, I am a river to my people, which is to say in the desert, I am the source of their life. In other words, as their leader, I am the one who makes things happen to the benefit of my people. And the metaphor there is, I'm a river to my people. So as you're in Isaiah chapter 32, each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. You could imagine Anthony Quinn saying something like that while waving his arms theatrically. And this is talking about the future king who will reign in righteousness and whose princes will rule in justice. It's sort of what I would describe as biblical hyperbole, Middle Eastern hyperbole. The point there is as of World War II, it was still a current metaphor, if you will, 
among the desert Arabs. You know, that kind of flowery way of speaking, using those kinds of metaphor to indicate a good and righteous ruler. All that is by way of saying we're now in verse 3. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. Remember in chapter 29, we described the process of exile, where God covers the eyes and the ears, namely the prophets and the seers. So this is the same metaphor that he used back in Isaiah 29 to describe the process of going into exile. He covers the head, blinds the eyes, closes the book so that the people will have no leadership and wisdom to turn them from their wicked ways because they are going into exile. Back in 30, the people said to the prophets, we don't want to hear any bad prophecies. We want you to tell us good prophecies. In other words, we don't really care what's going to happen. We want to be made to feel good, which makes this feel in 32 like end times at Sinai. The object of the exercise when God was speaking to his people at Sinai was that it was to be a wedding, the consummation of a wedding, where the groom, God, was going to put his seed, his word, into the heart of his bride with the intention of bringing forth life. The bride refused. They said, Moses, you go find out what he's got to say. Come back. We'll listen to you. We can't hear God anymore. At that point, we got tablets of stone. Tablets of stone are a metaphor for hearts of stone. In Isaiah 32 here, this is starting to feel like perhaps we have done the second circumcision of the heart, or as Ezekiel says, where he's removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. Because at this point, the people want to hear what God has to say, as opposed to chapter 30, where they didn't want to hear what he had to say. This is going to rock back and forth. Here it feels like end times. We go down a little bit, it's going to maybe feel like the Assyrian invasion. And it's one of the things about prophecy is the prophet speaks in ways that are ambiguous. Once the people have refused the clear message to repent and change their ways and come back to what God wants you to do, once that message has failed, then the words of the prophet become ambiguous. And I would suggest that perhaps this is such a case where you look at that, are we talking about end times? Are we talking about the time between the Assyrian taking out the northern kingdom and the Babylonians taking out the southern? And short answer is, I don't know. But the fact that it's ambiguous is sort of a trademark of a prophet who is speaking to a nation who has stiffened its neck. So verse 3 again. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand to know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. Another word for hasty is rash, impulsive. And the idea is those who are of a hasty temperament will consider their actions consider what they're about to do before they act. And similarly, the tongue of the stammerer will hasten to speak distinctly. One of the things about Moses, you remember, is he apparently had a stutter. When God was recruiting him to be the prophet that goes back to get Israel out of Egypt, he complains about his speech. I don't know that he had a stutter, but that would certainly be 
consistent with his hesitancy to speak before people. The stammerer speaking indicates that they are no longer in fear and they are able to speak calmly as opposed to stammering in an excited manner. That could very well be the sense of it. Verse 5, the fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Okay, full stop. That is our society today. What we have in our society now is the exaltation and glorification of fools and perverts and the wicked. So if you speak against the mentally insane, you stand a really good risk of having yourself fired and being blacklisted and a whole bunch of other stuff. So what is clearly then typical of Israel at the time there is their society has done the same thing. In other words, the United States has not invented anything new. Okay? Good old American know-how has not come up with new and different forms of screwiness. They are forms of screwiness that are known to all humanity. And what is being said here is the fool will no more be called noble and the scoundrel said to be honorable. So you will quit exalting perversion. And when I say perversion, I'm not specifically talking here in the sexual perversion I'm simply saying exalting the weirdos. The whole point is here, the society he is talking about has degenerated into foolishness and frivolity and perversion. And what he is talking about is that that will stop. So let me pick it up in verse 5 and move on. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of drink. One of the things in the center of that is the fool utters error concerning the Lord. In other words, he has an understanding of who God is and what God requires that is incorrect. Now, it may be the case that he is ignorant, or it may be the case that he is perverse, but the fact of the matter is he sows error concerning the Lord. Verse 7, as for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. There's a difference between a fool and a scoundrel. A fool is just dumb. A scoundrel is evil. Now, a fool may do evil in his dumbness. Just because he's dumb doesn't mean that he isn't evil. But the scoundrel isn't stupid. The scoundrel is just evil and perverse. This, by the way, starts in verse 5. The fool will no more be called noble, and the scoundrel said to be honorable. Then we describe what a fool and a scoundrel are, and then but... He who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. So we're talking about a time of good government after the current time of the prophecy. And as I said, it isn't clear to me whether we're talking about end times or we're just talking about the hundred and some odd years after the Assyrian invasion. Verse 9, 
Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. Stop there for a minute. I forgot to look up the cross-reference talking about the daughter of Zion and saying that the daughter of Zion is going to be stripped naked and whipped through the streets by foreign invaders. There's another place where this same metaphor comes up. You can take this two ways. You can take it as the literal city is the bride, which is where Israel lives, or you can take it as the city is the name of the country. Like you were to say, well, Washington is sending a delegation, well, the city of Washington, it's the United States government that's doing it. So it's Washington then becomes a metaphor, if you will, or a placeholder for the United States. So uh, Zion, Jerusalem, can serve that way. The other way it can be is talking about the social structure at the time of the end when society is starting to come apart. Anybody ever seen a slut walk? In fact, they just had a slut walk in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem this last week. All right, let me explain. A number of years ago, there was a young woman who was testifying before Congress that her student assistance in university was completely insufficient to pay for her birth control. Rush Limbaugh said, what do you call a young woman who is not married who needs that much birth control. He said, I call her a slut. So all of these liberated young women rose up in their pride at being sluts, and they had parades where they were coming down the street in their underwear. The idea was, I'm a liberated woman. I get to do what I want. You may call me a slut, but I'm proud of it because I can do whatever I want. I'm sexually free. I'm a, you know, on and on and on. You can't think anything ill of me simply by the way I'm dressed. And furthermore, you cannot think that I'm sexually available when I walk down the street half naked. In other words, when I dress like a prostitute, you can't treat me like one unless I specifically say I'm one and ask for your credit card. So the other thing that could be on offer here is a society where the women have become very much like those who are engaging in slut walks today. That could be the meaning of this also. And the thing that enables that is abundance. The only thing that makes that possible is that there is so much abundance in society that women can afford not to be connected with a man in a family because they get enough sustenance on their own that they don't need a man and a woman as a marriage to work together. The abundance is such that single moms are perfectly capable of making it on their own. And this is talking about the abundance here. The fruit harvest will not come, and the grape harvest fails. What it's talking about here is economic calamity, which is to say that the wealth that these women depend on 
to enable them to act in a high-handed and independent manner is going to fail. And they are going to discover that proud independent women without outside assistance starve. We are a fallen race. The heart is desperately wicked. The wickedness of the heart manifests itself differently in women than it does in men, but both of us have a fallen wicked heart. And what he is describing here is the manifestation of a fallen wicked heart in the absence of economic constraints to keep you tied down by necessity. So once the heart is free, this becomes the behavior of many women. Could this also be talking about women in high society who are very comfortable? And I was thinking of the old movies from the 20s, 30s, and 40s where you had this high society and British aristocracy kind of thing where everybody had their nose up to here. And again, they are dependent upon wealth. But the whole point is, upper crust society, people get to feel entitled. And we talked about this in Proverbs a while back. There's two proverbs about wealth that seem contradictory. Proverb number one says that a man's wealth is a strong city. In other words, it's protection. Proverb number two says that wealth is no protection at all, that those who trust in wealth will fall. Those are both true. In the face of a society that is functioning nicely, wealth is a strong city, which means that it shelters you from the everyday shocks of life. And the example I use, if you're driving down the street and you blow out a tire, 250 bucks, you got a new tire and you're on your way. I mean, it's annoying, it's inconvenient, it costs you a morning or an afternoon, but it isn't any big deal. If you're poor and you don't have the $250, you've lost your transportation, you're not able to get to your job, you may get fired, all sorts of cascading things happen. So. In that sense, wealth is a strong city or a fortress. On the other hand, when society's collapsing and the Assyrians are at the gate, then your wealth doesn't mean anything. Everybody goes into exile, rich and poor. So those two proverbs seem contradictory, but they're not. So this may in fact be talking about wealthy women who see their wealth as a strong fortress. And this is talking about the time when that goes away. And it goes away societally, not hubby goes broke and the credit cards are done, but the whole society gets wiped out is what we're talking about here. So, pick it up at verse 12. I'm in Isaiah 32, 12. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. So again, we're talking about economic devastation. We're talking about society collapsing. 14. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. This could be talking about the Babylonian exile. Because remember the reason for the Babylonian exile is they weren't giving the land its Sabbath rests. And so this describes the land returning to a natural state because nobody is cultivating it. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. 
and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quiet and trust forever. Go back to 14 now. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become a dens forever. A joy of wild donkey, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. In other words, until God returns us. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. But then you get in 16, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. That's why I'm thinking this might be in times. So you have the Spirit being poured out on high, and at that point, justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in a fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quiet and trust forever. So the idea here is when Israel is doing what God wants it to do, Israel will abide in peace and blessing. And that comes when the Spirit is poured out from on high. Verse 18, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. I'm not sure what forest is being hailed down and what city is being laid low. Not sure what we're talking about there. And then happy are you who sow beside all waters. Obviously, sowing in the presence of a source of water is the key to an abundant crop. And who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free indicates that you have returned to a state of Eden where animals roam free and you don't have to keep them in pens and those kinds of things. So except for the business of this city, being destroyed in the middle of it. Feels like end times. To sort of round this off, one of the things about prophecy, once Israel has declined to do what God wants it to do, prophecy becomes ambiguous. And it's ambiguous to this day. 